0: This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Jenna Siri, a bookseller and associate producer of Poured Over, and today I am so excited to be joined by Marie-Helene Bertino, who is an author of many incredible works of fiction, from novels to short fiction to a host of other things in the written world. I personally love Parakeet, even though it has... Some birds, which are not my favorite <laughs> thing. But I cannot wait to talk about her new novel, Beautyland, which is something that I'm going to be thinking about for a long time. There's so many incredible layers, so many incredible characters and themes that I think we're, are going to reach a lot of people in a lot of different ways. So thank you so much for joining
1: us today. Thank you, Jenna. It's an absolute pleasure. So the premise of this
0: book. Has a lot of different facets. There's a lot going on. Some things that I think are going to be familiar to readers, and some that I think will catch some people by surprise. So I was hoping we could start with you sort of just going over a little bit about the book and why you chose to write this story.
1: Of course, I'd be happy to. So Beauty Rand is a story about an extraterrestrial girl who was born in Philadelphia to a hardworking, very interesting single mother, but has the sense that she has been sent to Earth to take notes on human beings for a faraway planet. And there were many reasons that I decided to write this book and this particular story. One of which is that a few years ago, I wrote a short story called Sometimes You Break Their Hearts, Sometimes They Break Yours about an alien girl taking notes on the things about human life that I would call the profound mundane that we experience every single day and that are 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 just peculiar but that we don't think about because we're so used to them and I decided I thought it would be fun to take those things out and put them on the page and make the familiar strange so things like the fact that when we're sad, for example, or frustrated, that water comes out of our eyes, and things that too, a newcomer to the planet would would feel very bizarre. I had so much fun writing that story that the alien at the heart of that story wouldn't let me go. And so I began to keep a folder on my desktop called Notes on Human Beings, where I would put these little glimmers from throughout my day. And the Word document grew and grew and grew, and the shape of a protagonist started to glimmer through those notes, and I started to wonder if there was a novel in it. But to write the novel of this extraterrestrial, I would have to go so far deeper, so much farther into where she would come from, what she was doing here, what her literal life would be like with this arguable understanding of the place that she's from 300,000 light years away. And so I began to write Beautylands from this deep desire to look at the profound mundane and to maybe connect to other human beings slash readers.
0: And I love the idea of this profound mundane and this idea that the biggest and most important things about humans are not all of the accomplishments or the best and brightest of us, but maybe it's just in the getting through the day and understanding what it takes to live a life, even on a small scale. But it's still a pretty big undertaking to say, to write about the human condition. (laughs) And I wonder how it feels to sort of create that experience for readers. We follow Adina from birth, literally, through her Mm -hmm. life and hitting all of these important moments. But they all feel a little bit different from maybe what we would have experienced. And yet, it's very closely connected to, I think, what so many of us feel on a day-to-day.
1: Thank you for saying that. Yes, that's what I hoped for. Deciding what to include about someone's life is the success or failure of a project like this, for sure. And so the, pro- the project became what to include and what to leave out. And this was the first book-length project in which I did have an entire lifespan. My first book was set over the course of 24 hours. My second novel, Parakeet, was over the course of a week. And this is over the course of a lifespan. So, and it also in the idea of infinite and ongoing time so time is very much collapsing in Beautyland as well so you are absolutely correct and it is a keen insight to ask how did you do this the answer is it took a very long time and it took years especially to collect the amount of details that she would be noticing and pointing out so i was very lucky to have that collection, that folder I could fall back on. And then it was just a matter of noticing deeper and challenging myself to notice what I was noticing every day on a, a pretty durational level for a long time. And I'm glad if, if you think that it worked.
0: Those interstitial pieces of Adina's communications to you know this other existence, this other planet, whatever, you know, it feels like in the moment because she sort of vacillates through how she feels as well, but those pieces mm-hmm. really orient the story in a way that makes it a, a more accessible to understand some of those things and I think will also offer readers a glimpse into some of their own feelings that maybe they've never put into words. So are all of those pieces things that you had in your folder that you sort of incorporated in and built around or were there also some of those that came through as you were writing?
1: A little of both, I would say. And yes, I think it's very true that the transmissions Adina sends through her fax machine, her vintage fax machine that has been thrown out into the trash and her mother very characteristically has pulled from the trash, that Adina realizes is the way she can connect to her superiors on another planet, come so important through the story. The fax machine being this really interesting and crucial object of connection between her and her faraway planet, but also to the reader. So she's also essentially faxing the reader and saying, this is my experience on Earth. Do you understand? Are you like me? One enormously gratifying thing I will share with you about early reads of this book so far is that I made a conscious decision to be as specific as I could about Adina, to be specific about her neurodiversity, for example, her um, aromantic nature, her Italian-Americanness, her lower income status. I made I tripled and quadrupled down into details of her life. And I crossed my fingers that this specificity would achieve a universal connection to readers. And the gratifying thing is that so far, readers who do not share her specific experience still feel like they can relate to her on a human level. And that was my major goal with the book. And it's enormously gratifying to hear those things. It actually, in some cases, has brought me to tears.
0: She is truly a character, a voice, a narrator that we immediately know and can immediately understand. And the voice is so specific and right that like, you trust immediately. And I think that's what so many of us look for when we're reading is... A narrator that you know is going to take you somewhere, even if it c- is not at all where you expect, which I think this novel offers a lot of forays into areas that, like you said, many people maybe don't share those inherent qualities with. And yet, you know that the outcome is still going to be something that you can understand. And I know creating this character offered a lot of different levels for you to explore, I guess, the human condition and different emotions and feelings. But it really feels like this is a character that you're connected to.
1: I'm so glad. And if it makes you look twice at people in your life who you see every day, that would make my heart glad too. There are two characters in the book who became so important to me and so much fun to write. One was a character who only exists in a scene called the very famous poet. And another is Yolanda Kay, who was a workout instructor, whose very sage advice became so important to Adina and was so much fun to write. And they are two characters who are, quote unquote, minor characters of the narrative. But in their own lives, of course, they are major characters. And one of the things I like to do best is to kind of hint at the, the major characterness of a minor character and Yolanda Kay especially, I wish I I, I wish I had her as my best friend.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. So many of your I guess you know uh, supporting characters, the tapestry of these other people in Adina's life are so important and so interesting. Her mother, of course is such an important piece of this and mm-hmm. as that sort of unfolds and you get to see her and how you see her changes as how Adina sees her changes is such an interesting mm-hmm. thing and she really becomes so much fuller as that understanding grows her friend Tony and Dominic they're both so great butternut a very important mm-hmm. piece of the story mm-hmm. and all of those other characters sort of woven together really create something magical, I think, in her world that she sort of comes to understand is very important.
1: Mm, I love that. And you're right, her mother is so important. And I think if there is any magic in the story, it is because of the gift of Adina's attention. You know, she turns her insightful attention towards something and makes it shine. And I think that that is actually information about what our attention can do. And I don't think the story
0: works in the same way without all of those people that she finds connection with. And though that connection is comes in varying different ways and I think sometimes as a reader you go, "Oh, you feel like you have some insight that she needs." because you can feel her struggling with something and you just want to tell her something like that thing to to make that moment easier for her but you don't shy away from like those hard awkward moments that come up especially between inner person or inner person and alien relationships
1: <laughs> it's so true adina does a lot of growing throughout the novel and the transmissions she faxes at the beginning of the novel are so far from the transmissions toward the end when she's really grappling with the deeper facets of sorrow and end of life.
0: And I do really love that it's a fax machine because I can't think of one singular piece of technology that frightens me more than a fax machine. If I know there's probably a lot of people now who have never used one, and I can't say I've used one a lot, but they are the worst.
1: What is it that's so terrifying about a fax machine, do you think?
0: It's just, it's so complicated for what it does. <laughs> it's There's so many steps to do like a thing and it only does like mm-hmm. one thing.
1: <laughs> it's true. I love it. It is a monotasking piece of equipment, which is why I love it. And I think it works so well for the premise of an extraterrestrial because there it's such a complicated process to do something very simple that conveys an experience that is extraordinarily complicated. And so it's, it's all of those levels. And it's just funny to me too. It's just, it just tickles me.
0: And I love too, the like connection that her mother brings to it where, you know, this idea that her mother saves everything and and finds this in the trash. And, and like, there's so many things at the beginning of Adina's life that are this perfect set of like, all of these moments happened perfectly in order for one thing to converge. There's so many like little moments of chance where you're like, that's kind of also a facet of human life that Mm. there's so many moments of chance in our existence for things to have to happen for the next thing.
1: Oh, that's brilliant because even humans being on this earth is the result of many, 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 many things happening in a particular way over the course of an unfathomable amount of time, evolution, essentially. And if anything had gone differently, we would be, so we would look, we would look different. We would be different. And so that, what you just mentioned has a cosmic parallel that I think is really interesting.
0: And there's so many, I mean, for people, anyone who's interested in that sort of cosmic nature of things of our, place in the universe or you know, what's beyond this planet and what's out there. There's so much like Carl Sagan and all that fun stuff in this book. Mm-hmm. and the aliens know about his turtlenecks. That really got me. There's <laughs> all of those connections as well, which I think we don't always see in fiction. I think a lot of times like fiction and science don't converge in literary novels that's in a separate thing. But there's so much of that, that, especially now at this time of human existence, is really in the forefront of so many people's consciousness.
1: It's, it's very, very true that science and literature are meeting in this work of fiction. My students taught me a really wonderful term called science fact. And I am certain that um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, for example, would read Beautyland and see a bunch of mistakes. But for the record, I researched more for this book than I ever have for any other work of fiction. And as far as I can tell, this is as accurate as I could write this story.
0: (laughs) I definitely wanted to talk about research as we were going through because I could tell reading. I mean, this, I'm racking my brain to think of a time where there, I read a novel with more just details and not in an overwhelming way, not in a homeworky, like, here's all these things you need to know. But you do a sense of world building for us that really sets up exactly where we are. And I know that in order to do that, you had to have a research
1: component. Absolutely. And good. I'm glad that you felt that way. Because it was absolutely true. And I researched, you know, I, I, I got a, a minor concentration, I think, in the SETI Institute, which is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence that Carl Sagan founded. And I studied all of Carl Sagan's works. I studied Voyager 1, you know, a shuttle that becomes an almost literal sibling to Adina throughout the book. And Voyager 1 also, you know, Carl Sagan had a lot to do with the contents that were on Voyager one that were meant to tell extraterrestrials what human life is about. And so I I even actually applied for an artist fellowship to work at SETI. And they very wisely uh never responded to me. (laughs) Because I'm sure I sounded like a a just a total wackadoo. I did research a lot so that I knew at least as much about planet cricket rice that Adina would and that, you know, as far as she would know, these facts are true. And and what was also super helpful and a, a signifier that the work was going well was every time Adina had an important event in her life, I would literally check it against the stars. I would literally check it against the timeline of astrological development. And 201, something had also happened around the same time. And so, as you know, every time Adina has a major milestone, it's balanced with a major milestone in astronomical development. And so that lent the book its structure, which is the five stages in the life of a star. And so as Adina has her Earth life, the universe is also growing and, no pun intended, expanding.
0: I have always been interested in space and aliens and all of that kind of thing. I always make a joke, um, and my friends that are listening are going to be like, "Jenna, you shouldn't say this on air, but I always <laughs> say that the reason that I've never been abducted by aliens is because I believe so much already that they're like, we do not need to prove it to you. <laughs> But, and I'm always like, please.
1: So I am talking to an actual believer with a capital B. Perhaps.
0: Look, I mean, we're getting more and more. I mean, they're always releasing things now from the actual government saying there've been aliens this whole time. So I'm just saying that maybe there's a little bit more to all of this than we know.
1: I don't think there's a shadow of a doubt. I am on your side. And now I've, I've publicly put myself out there as an alien person,
0: but that's fine because it's true. And after reading this, I'm like, well, if that's what they're, if some of them are like, then that's, you know, that's fine. And I think that sort of research aspect fits in with Adina's constant quest for understanding, even when she truly feels like she can't grasp something or she sends back an observation that they're like, we already know that or why does that matter
1: <laughs> mhm i think one of the fir- one of the most joyful moments of adina's life is when she hears the word others from her her superiors they tell her we have others reporting on that and that begins a really important strand in adina's life too as she tries to find these others and that was really directly connected toward feelings i have and perhaps you know you can relate to this, of being in communion with certain people in your life and meeting someone who it seems like you've known forever. In that way, I was thinking of, yeah, like others, like fellow, fellow aliens that you meet along the way with whom you share a profound affinity. I think going into
0: these stories, looking for that connection and understanding that Adina is also looking for that connection, though she may not always know that that's what she's seeking or that that's what she's looking for. Especially at so many moments in her life where she's like, "I, I am alone. This is, this is all that there will ever be." And yeah. then to watch her unfold in some of those connections and sometimes struggle and sometimes fail because we all do in those moments. But to find those mm-hmm. people or to even find other. Things that you connect with, like a pet or a mm-hmm. you know TV show, or so many things that connect us. Still,
1: absolutely, a pet can be a home planet for you. A friend can be a home planet. A, a workout instructor can be a home planet. And you know there are also people who she meets who she thinks are another that turn out to 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 disappoint her. And, you know, that happens too. And one could say that it makes it all the sweeter when you do find someone who seems and is a home for you. And I think that's what she's looking for.
0: And all of those sort of trials and tribulations that she experiences. I think when we're reading something like that, that's the best way that so many of us can connect. So many of us go to fiction, to novels, to that kind of thing, to seek that kind of connection as well. And sometimes the person that you feel really knows you so well is not a person at all, but a character.
1: Oh, yes, a thousand percent. And I know so many writers and readers of books who go to the page for that exact reason, because maybe they haven't been able to find that place in their lives where they feel completely like themselves. But in a book, they feel like they can feel what they need to feel as deeply as they need to feel it. I mean, that's that has been the role of books for me my entire life and definitely as a child. And so Beautyland is a literal location of a place that feels like that, I hope. <laughs> and
0: settings in this book, speaking of places, you create some very vivid and real Settings for us. I was saying before we started recording that this is an incredible New York City book. It has so many great New York City things. It's a great Philadelphia book. I don't have as much experience there. I have been to Philadelphia, but I don't have as much experience. But it is a great sort of combo of these places that really, because of Adina's attention to detail, we get so much from these settings.
1: I'm so glad. It's true. It's a little bit Philadelphia. It's a little bit New York City. And New York City especially was a challenge to render because as she finds when she tries to write about it in her transmissions, so many people have tried to write about New York City and have failed. And so I think in the book, it, it says something like she makes the mistake that many young writers make. She tries to write about New York City. And I knew I was making that mistake even as I was writing those lines. So I tried to focus on, you know, I tried to focus on the aspects of New York City that would only be known by those of us who have lived here. And New York City, though it has been written about and filmed a lot, I also feel like there's a quality of it that is rarely rendered it's often misunderstood i realize as i travel there's this um opinion about new york city that we're all here living these luxurious indulgent lives and that none of us work very hard for a living in case in cases and that has not been my experience in new york city at all i mean several jobs and and you know there are a lot of families struggling to get to get by here. And there are a lot of really, really proud, great people who work very hard to be able to stay and live in a city that they love. And so the lower income part of New York City, unfortunately, doesn't make it to the page as much as I think that it should. And that was the New York City that I wanted to talk about, because that is the New York City I have inhabited. It's not something that I'm writing about that I don't know about you know Adina is lower income her her mother is lower income. I think many times characters like this are written about by people who have enjoyed a lot of affluence in their lives, and at least once i I wanted to have someone be writing about lower income urban inhabitants who had actually had that experience, so it was really important to me to talk about her neighborhood in Queens, for example, and bargain department stores and backbreaking things that people do to support those who they love. And so that's the, the side of New York City I was I was hoping to shed light on. And it's the fun part of New York City, too. I mean, the rattling seven train doesn't appear beautiful, you know, on first glance. But when, you know, you look deeper, and you're having a wonderful day, you know, the seven train can be this shining, glimmering gem, even though it's also, you know, when I lived in Queens, it was the, the least reliable train that I've ever been on. You're nodding. I feel like you know what I mean.
0: <laughs> I'm thankful I don't have to rely on the seven, but it has thwarted my day plenty of times.
1: <laughs> I know it has such a personality, that train. It's the only train I've ever experienced that was taken out of service because it was cold. That's what they said. This seven train is no longer running because it's cold. I mean, you have to respect a queen like that, you know, Mm -hmm. all sorts of respect for my queen, the seven train.
0: (laughs) I think too, you represent the smallness of New York City very well, which sounds, you know, a little antithetical, but Everything can be so community based, and so, like, I call it the largest small town in the world because everything sometimes feels like a small town. Like, I will run into people I know on the street, which I don't do in my actual suburban hometown. And, you know, you can have these relationships with someone who works in the deli you go to every day, and you can have these, like, micro communities and these little cities where you live, which I think. Doesn't always get represented
1: very well in fiction. I think that that is absolutely what I'm talking about with things that people don't necessarily know. I get asked, "Do you know who your neighbors are?" a lot, and all of my neighbors are artists and writers, or you know, people who think that artists and writers are pretty fun to hang out with, and we all know each other on the street and. During the pandemic, that was especially useful because we were able to help one another out by leaving things on each other's stoops and talking through windows into backyards. And we were aware of each other. So even though we were cloistered during the lockdown, um, we could hear and see human beings around. And that actually... Made the difference in, in those darker, most isolating months.
0: And I think, too, I mean, stepping back half a second about you said sort of representing a, a type of lifestyle that isn't often represented. There's so much care and compassion for the way you describe, especially Adina's childhood and her mother sort of doing all of these things for her that maybe she doesn't come to see until later. To sort of Mm -hmm. cushion and make sure that she still has as much uh, as she can have. And I think, sort of, that idea of of Adina looking back and being like, we had boiled chicken every day, and her mom being like, no, we simply didn't.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. What other false misconceptions do you have about your childhood, girl? Yes. I think that, and I would imagine that many people have that experience. They are absolutely convinced of something that has happened in their childhood and then their parents correct them like, no, no, that is not the way it was at all. And so Adina has these nice moments in, in adulthood when her mother very gently gets to correct her, these these false conceptions.
0: I think another thing that sort of goes along with the research or the world that you've created and something I feel like I have to talk about is your inclusion of so many incredible pop culture Details in your writing, you move through time pretty quickly. And so sometimes the best ways to orient to when and where something is is these details about movies that Adina is watching or music she's listening to or something they've seen on TV. It's such an interesting and subtle way to set us in a place in time. But there are so many things that I'm sure including all those details was daunting.
1: Yes, absolutely. And again, knowing what to include was key, and there was a lot of trial and error in that. So, in the beginning, I wanted to include just everything I loved about the late 70s and the 80s. And you just simply cannot do that. It has to serve the story. So, one thing that I was so I was trying so hard to figure out how I could get in was Nirvana and the death of Kurt Cobain and the character of Dominic is essentially the book's music weather vane. So I track music through Dominic, you know, he, he goes through grunge and then he becomes a hipster and he's listening to the strokes. And, and so I, I liked having a character who was reflecting the change in music at the time. Um, and hip hop, he introduces Adina to hip hop. Um, But I couldn't get everything in. I had to remind myself, Marie, you are not writing a pamphlet on these years. You know, you're not writing an encyclopedia entry. So things like Nirvana and the death of Kurt Cobain, unfortunately, had to be jettisoned. But obviously, they live forever in my heart.
0: (laughs) I'd like to imagine there still might have been a transmission about it. Maybe we didn't see it. But I I think that it's something that the, the alien, that planet Cricket Rice still needed to know.
1: As Adina's work, her work was always going to be flawed and incomplete just by the nature of her being a human. So, too, was mine. I could not possibly include every transmission I wanted to. And I hate to admit this to you, Jenna, but I am still, they are still occurring to me. I'm going to have to keep another folder because almost every single day since I turned this book in, something has happened where I'm like, oh, oh God, that would have made an amazing transmission. But I think that's just saying that this book is about life and about noticing how you live your life. And so I think that that just means it's ongoing for the rest of time in perpetuity.
0: I think this book could exist forever and ever in that sense of There's no end to any of this. And the balance of things that may be sometimes humorous and light and joyful and also the hard and the struggle. I think there's a line that uh, Adina says something about that her favorite emotion is joy because it's all the other ones too. And that one really Mm -hmm. sticks with me. And in Mm -hmm. your work, there's all these balances of the hard With the light and the hard with the compassionate. And Mm -hmm. as you write, it sort of creates that because we couldn't get through this book without some of the levity that we need from the silly things that she finds along with the
1: profound. Thank you. Yes, it is so true that the light and the dark are absolutely side by side uh, in this book. And I think sometimes speculative gets the sometimes deserved rep of being only weird and only strange for the sake of being frivolous and strange, but at least in Beauty Lands and in my other work, I've tried really hard to be honest about the hard times, almost more so because they are always side by side with moments of, in some cases, literal supernatural, the literal supernatural. So it was important to me to, to hold those two. And because I think by having both, each part can be a little deeper because they're being balanced together, side by side. And so I'm I'm glad. We are going to ask people to fax their own transmissions to us that I'm going to read at some point. And I was curious if if anything from your own life would leaps to mind as like something you would you would fax as a transmission.
0: Something I've been saying so much recently in my own life that feels like it would fit is just you never get to stop, you have to just go. And no matter what comes and what's mm-hmm. in front of you, the human mm-hmm. experience is just having to go go and go and go, and it just, yeah, and not even in like a hustle culture kind of way but just in order to keep life going it has to move somewhere
1: oh I see so no fixed points you're always yeah shifting. like it's always moving
0: yes and, it, and you never get to even if you don't realize it it's still going and you're still moving
1: even when you feel like you're staying staying in place yes mm-hmm Ooh, you could do a whole chapter on that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It is is one of those things that this book makes you think sort of in Adina's cadence. And you start to look at things and go, how would I boil this down to a one facts transmission? And I think that there's a lot of those moments that, you know, as you go through and read, either her transmissions make you think of a, a similar moment, Or, you know, like I was reading this on the train and being like looking around being like, what would I say about this moment?
1: Now you're one of my students because this is what we do in class (laughs) a lot too. How would we observe the subway, you know, based on what our interior desire is? That's wonderful. Oh, I hope you do it.
0: (laughs) I know. I would also send them my, my train experience recently that I couldn't stop telling people about was watching a man a 7-Eleven chili dog at like 7.30 a.m. on the train. And I was like, yup.
1: "What? No, that's not okay. <laughs> that's not okay. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, that would be a disgusting but an absolutely integral transmission. <laughs> Thank you for bearing witness to that man. Oh, why? Why? No, will never know. You've seen, have you seen – I hear this on WYYC a lot when they have call-ins about the subway. Have you seen someone clipping their nails? On yes, the
0: train. Absolutely.
1: I mean, that's just not okay. That's something that, that I wish I could have written transmissions about <laughs> subway behavior, yes. lack of etiquette.
0: <laughs> absolutely. Something <laughs> that I have to ask, because it's true for me is, do you miss Adina now that you've finished writing? I know you get to talk about her, and you get to sort of still keep her, you know, going in these certain ways, but do you miss sort of sitting with her as you wrote?
1: Yeah, I do. I really miss her. I miss her a lot. Thankfully, though, she's always with me and I can always, I know this sounds silly, but every time I talk to somebody about this book, it makes me want to go back and read it. And so I can always go back and read what I wrote. And sometimes it occurs to me as if someone else wrote it. And I feel very lucky that way. And that's true with a lot of my characters. There are some characters in my first novel, 2AM at the Cat's Pajamas, who I also return to, especially around Christmas Eve, Eve, which is when that book is set. And I think about them all the time. The way that you do when you've spent years and years with someone. It's very similar. Thank you for asking that. I really love that question.
0: I always find when I... You know, come to the end of a book. It's like, it's not like I wish for sequels for things, but I'm always like, well, I hope that wherever they are, they're okay.
1: Yes, that echoes what Adina feels about a couple characters in the book, too. But I always think I am, I normally tend to think that a sequel is almost always a bad idea. <laughs> and so, I mean, at least for literary fiction and this book, I think if I tried to recapture some of that magic, it would just be me trying to avoid moving into a different project. So I don't know that I will be writing a sequel, but I also know enough to know that you should never say never.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. So I get to ask now one of my favorite questions, which is about your literary influences and people that you love that have shaped you as a reader and as a writer because I always need okay.
1: more recommendations. Oh, great. Okay. Oh, and then every time I get a question like this, everything I've ever read just flows right absolutely. out of my head. I'm going to look this up if you don't mind, because I want to give course. you the right information. But recently on my commutes, I've been listening to an absolutely lovely podcast that I'm going to assign to my students. Ursa Short Fiction. It's with Donnie Walton and Deisha Filial. Those are two really lovely writers, and their podcast is on short fiction specifically, and I have just loved every episode they've had so far. So Ursa Fiction, and then the works of those two, uh, Disha Filial, who wrote The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, and Donnie Walton, who wrote The Last Revival of Opalone. I just read to the other D from um, their hometown, Dontiel Montee's Milk, Blood, Heat absolutely searing fiction that I love so much. So that's like what I'm reading now. And then my influences have been Edward P. Jones, who is a short story writer who I love so much. I have nothing in common with his style, but I've learned so much about character from him. He's like one of my my uppercase people. Yoko Ogawa and Toni Morrison are just my heroes. I've learned so much from them. Michael Cunningham whose book Day is out right now. Um, He was a literal mentor of mine. And reading his new work Day continues to instruct me, which is amazing. He wrote The Hours, which I think is like a perfect book. And then, you know, contemporaries of mine who I've been in literal conversation with, like Ramona Osabell, whose book The Last Animal last year was just so utterly lovely. Claire David Watkins, Claire Lucchetti day Hauser. I mean the list goes on and on and on. And I could and I would literally not stop talking if I kept going, but those are a few who I'm in literal and metaphorical conversation with when I write and I feel so grateful to be at the table with those folks.
0: That's always my favorite part of these conversations is to hear yeah. those connections to other works and to other writers where I think it all just like plays in a big in a big bookshelf where I keep all of it in my head.
1: Yeah. I mean, it really is true that one of the best things ever is to read a living writer and then know you can contact them and say, I really loved your book. I can't tell you how many times I've done that. And it's always like with trepidation, like I'm so sorry to bother you, but I just want to tell you that I love you and I love your work. And it's making me feel like I can get through another hard week. You know, but it's a joy of life.
0: Right, especially right now when the world seems to continuously change and sometimes be frightening and sometimes be wonderful and joyous and yet we still return to fiction to get us through the good and bad of all of
1: it. Thank goddess for fiction. I know that during the pandemic I heard a lot of people, especially those who had books out, which I did, ask, well what good is fiction? What good what even can fiction bring to this moment and I was never asked that and I was happy because I I didn't I saw fiction as utterly so utterly important in that moment because that's when you need to imagine yourself out of circumstances the most. That's when you need to be informed by other people's perspectives the most and to and to learn from them and to escape into other people's lives and to feel like richer and, and smarter after. I mean, most of what I know about how to be a human in the world is probably because I've read novels and fiction and science fiction and fantasy my entire life and and got to cheat and know how other people did things because of those perspectives. Oh no, now I'm proselytizing about fiction. I'm so sorry, Jenna. <laughs> Jenna, who are you who are you reading right now who you really love? Or who well, are you influenced? I
0: just read Um, Claire Oshetsky's new book, Poor Deer, which is incredible. Um, I have been, I just finished uh, recently Gabriel Bump's novel, The New Naturals, which was really incredible. One of my, I mean, one of my absolute favorite books from this past year was Daughter by Claudia Day, which is Mm -hmm. just stunning.
1: Mm -hmm. I blurbed that book. That's a beautiful book. That book just grips you and never lets you go. Yes.
0: So those are some of my big things that I've read recently that I love, but I'm always on the hunt for what I'm going to find next.
1: I bet you are. I mean, that's kind of your biz. It It is. It's
0: it's the best biz.
1: (laughs) It truly is.
0: (laughs) So I have to ask as well, it's some people's favorite question and some people's least favorite question, but um, are you working on something next? Is there something on the horizon for you that we can all be excited about?
1: Oh, I love this question this time, because I get to to tell you for the first time that I actually am going to have another short story collection out with FSG in 2025. So I get to publish my second short story collection and return to lovely stories that I love so much. So thank you for that question. This is the first time I got to say that. Yay. It's very exciting. (laughs) We love short
0: fiction. I don't think sometimes it gets enough credit for what it can do, but it is very exciting to hear that. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for this incredible conversation. I hope everyone immediately goes out and picks up a copy of Beautyland because I think it is something so special and people are really going to find something in Adina that will reach them on a pretty deep level. So thank you so much for writing this book and for joining us today.
1: You are so welcome, Jenna. Thank you for the honor of your company. We
0: you take care. I'm Jenna Siri, a bookseller and associate producer of Poured Over. And today, I am very excited to be joined by Claire Oshetsky to talk about their new book, Poor Deer. Which, if you remember Shuette, which I hope you do, I know it was seared into my brain as soon as I saw the words "owl baby." and what an adventure that took us all on. But now, Poor dear is an incredible, introspective look at grief, and friendship, and parenthood, and all sorts of incredible things, all with sort of that magical realism twist that people will expect. So, Claire, thank you so
2: much for being with us today. Thanks for inviting me, Jenna.
0: So, since this book has so many layers, we've got an incredible narrator, we've got narratives within narratives. We've got so many different themes to unpack. I'd hope that you would start with setting us up with a little bit about Poor Deer.
2: Sure. Um, This is a book about two little girls who go out on the first day of spring in their uh, probably the first day they remember uh, since they're both four years old of uh, warmth and play a game that goes horribly awry and one of the girls dies. And the story follows the survivors, um, in particular, the other little girl, and how she grows up with this grief and has to deal with her own accountability for what happened on that day. I gave that girl, her name is Margaret, a lot of uh, ability to tell that story in different ways as she's growing up and trying to imagine for herself a better ending for the day. That allowed me to explore a lot of different um, different aspects about grief and accountability and reckoning and forgiveness in a way that was very useful for me as a, as a writer too. I, I I enjoyed writing this book very much.
0: And I think readers will be able to feel that passion and that, you know, joy that you felt while you were writing. I always think you can tell when an author really is putting a piece of their soul or a piece of themselves into the writing. And it doesn't have to mean like biographically, even though that's often the case. I think you can really feel when an author knows and hits on something.
2: I was thinking about how often in a tragedy we hear about that first terrible thing, like Right now, I seem to be reading a lot about accidental gun deaths of a child shooting another child, and you'll see a little news excerpt of this. The focus of the news is the child that died, but... I started thinking about the aftermath. When a child dies tragically, families never get over it. How do they go on, really? And actually, you mentioned autobiographical. At some point, I have to say that this is a very autobiographical novel. My story ended happily. But um, right around the, the time I was <laughs> finishing up Chouette, actually, I, it was spring 2021 when I started writing Poor Dear. And I was like, Okay chouette's done it's in the can it's ready to be published what am i going to write now and i kept coming back to this memory it's not my first memory but it's a very early memory of playing with a friend of mine in her garage and um, this was the 50s when you could not get yourself out of a cooler or a freezer or refrigerator if the door closed behind you and we were playing a game, and I closed the lid, and and I couldn't get it open again, even though I was on the outside. And I ran away. And uh, her mom found her in time. And, like, I hadn't thought about it since then, because we moved away. But thankfully, I, I can't imagine, like, living next to this family for the rest of my life. But we moved away very soon after that. And I hadn't really thought about it for, like, many, many, many decades. I it just kept coming into my brain i thought well i'm gonna write about that and what if her mom had not heard her and frankly i don't understand how her mom heard her because it was a garage it was very muffled i could barely hear her even though i was terrified and i knew something was wrong but i was just a little too young at four to understand it except it was really scary and that really propelled me um, to think, well, what if, what if that hadn't happened? It, obviously, it would have been a great tragic loss of life. But then there would be these two families as well. So everything else in the story is made up. But um, that kernel is what drove me, like, how lucky we all are that it turned out that way. And how undeserved that luck is, really. It, we... <laughs> I mean, I didn't do anything different. But I I was saved uh, by this lovely woman who I also have an incredibly strong memory about. She was a very strong woman and saved a lot of people that day.
0: I think it plays on one of those things that human beings try not to think about that in just one moment, so much can change and everything can be different, whether for better or worse. But So often those moments, those like hinge moments seem to be between normal life and tragedy. And I think that that really hits so squarely with all of us because we all make decisions all day, every day that could really lend into these kind of moments. And especially when you're four years old and you may not even have a concept of death and you may not understand the grand scheme of how that one little decision can really change the lives of so many people
2: i didn't understand about death i i vividly was terrified but this idea of why was beyond me and i like that idea of hinge moments because that phrase really nails it that it's sort of like a chaotic event and if it tips one way you feel everlasting guilt if it tips the other way you don't think about it it's like oh that kid in the crosswalk i almost hit but you didn't you, didn't have this happen and I was very interested in that through no change of behavior in our own in one case we live with lifelong grief and guilt and the other we forget about it it's like oh that didn't happen that's the thing that didn't happen I don't need to worry about it yeah so that's that's what I was kind of gripped by how how those moments can affect us and and that in a fictional transformation, I, I might get to some truth that other people have felt like, oh, that could have happened to me.
0: I think too, even just people who, this is obviously on a pretty grand scheme that, you know, a life would be lost. But I remember even, it was even reminding me of moments, you know, you're a kid and you break something and you try to hide it and you just feel that story getting away from you as time goes. And just that visceral moment when you realize the stories ahead of you. And I feel like Margaret has those moments in the book where the story gets too big for even her to control or her to understand and other people's reactions to it, like her mother or some of the other people that she encounters are really interesting because like you said, we don't really think about, okay, there's a tragedy and life goes on, but who's left picking up pieces and who's left trying to keep their lives going.
2: That's right. And who feels the guilt? Who feels responsible? And how fair is that? You know, that obviously a four-year-old child has no responsibility for what happens any, any time in their lives. They're too young to understand. But I did imagine that that would be old enough to remember and to just carry that mantle forever, that, that you were you responsible for that. And even these little things you're talking about, like breaking something, you remember them, right? They just never go away. They're like, oh, I did that thing when I was eight. Oh, I did that thing, and we we accumulate things as we get older. And I thought, what what is that all about? I wanted to write about it. It's it's kind of a bad thing we do to ourselves. And Margaret
0: is such a great vessel for it because her voice just grows as the story continues, and you really, though she does a lot of things that I think many of us would not do. Or makes choices that we hope we wouldn't make as time goes on. The way that we're sort of introduced to her through these series of events, you can't help but just be on board with whatever happens. You feel like you have to know because there's something in, like, well, what would I do? What would I do? And you just have to keep going on that journey with Margaret. And I wonder sort of how her voice came to you and how you started down the path of creating her as a character.
2: I really wanted her to be saved I wanted her to find peace but I do a lot of reading when I'm writing I I I know a lot of people that are like I can't read when I'm writing I read more and I I look for books that that um, have tackled one a, a child's voice how how to make that compelling but also believable and two the specific idea of of causing the death of another when you're too young to understand it. The first one, there's so many choices, so many options for how to get across uh, a child's voice. So on one hand, I'm sure you've read Emma Donahue's Room, Mm -hmm. and there you have a first person voice that's all on the outside. You are hearing the voice of a five-year-old child narrating a story. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to have more elegance, more interiority, just more sophistication. Um, so I created a narrator that's older and I made her very wordy. She's, she loves words. She loves to tell stories. It's, it's like her salvation in a way to make up stories, to observe her world as, as a series of, of stories. So the narrator is 16. It's 16-year-old Mar- Margaret talking about when she was four. In that way, I, I, I felt like I had a, a way to capture the, the interiority of a four-year-old, but also make it a little more interesting linguistically, because it's an older child talking about this. Okay, the second thing, where has this been done fictionally? I'm not sure if you're aware of these two books, but they're both by Dutch authors, which I thought was interesting. They're a very Calvinistic society. This one, uh, The Discomfort of Evening, uh, won the International Booker Prize a few years Mm -hmm. ago. And um, it's just devastating. It it begins the same way, a, a child who feels responsible for the death of another child. And it just gets really bad. It's one of the harshest books I've ever read. This one is very close. There's this is like less. But again, it's like, oh, these these characters never get over it. So I was like, OK, I'm going to write something more redemptive. And as I said, and they kind of called to me, as did um There's writers who've written memoirs where um, they write about this and they never get over it. There's a um, John Gardner wrote a short story called Redemption, and it begins with a true event where he killed his brother in a farming accident, basically never got over it. So I was like, okay, I'm not going to do that. But I also want to make it feel not sentimental. Right. I, I want it to feel true, like that Margaret gets somewhere. And that was the challenge of the book to make it happen in a way that was realistic, that felt earned and was redemptive in the end that I didn't want to leave people with that bad feeling that these other books, however, beautiful, however beautifully written had left me true in their own way, but I didn't want that to be my truth. Basically.
0: I think earned is a very good word for, how we feel at the end of the book as we come through Margaret's story because it's not easy. There's no point where, you know, things are lining up for her to reach this redemption in a way that I think some books would, which is like, okay, we want to feel good and so here are the steps to feel good. She has to feel a lot of bad before she can feel I think normal. And as we're rolling through that, you have this sense of how much is really what we're being shown. There is an unreliability, I guess, to what we're seeing. Like you would imagine from the memory of any child, especially one who's been through so much. And there's, you know, you do a lot of clever things with the entity of poor dear to sort of correct us. But I think as soon as I realized that that's sort of where that that was going, that there were going to be moments that weren't, accurate or weren't true, I s- started reading the entire thing. I think I was probably like 30 pages in and started back from the beginning just to be sure that I knew really what was happening as I read.
2: Well, I hope that wasn't too challenging. I felt it was psychologically valid that what we do when something's just too hard to grasp, we we make up stories, we change our memories. And uh, so I wanted to f- have that happen to this girl that she's she's trying very hard and of course the people around her aren't telling the truth they're telling her her friend went to a better place or she's passed on she's an angel now in heaven and maybe that's true for some people but it really confuses this girl because she knows something terrible has happened and yet all the adults around her are are basically telling her this happy story So that sets her off from the beginning of needing to find out for herself, okay, what really happened and what was my role in what happened? I love
0: a book that I have to put in just as much as I'm going to get out of it. I want to have to make those connections and do a little bit of work in order to really feel like I'm connecting with something. And I think that so many pieces of Margaret's story fit so well into that where I was like, I... I mean, all of us are going to bring our own things to when we read any book, but I want a little bit of a challenge, and I think there's a lot of moments where you have to make a lot of connections yourself in order to really understand
2: what's going on. I think so. Or uh, actually, I think there's multiple ways to read this book, and I'm okay with that. Like, oh, this one is true. Um, this is what's really happening. You mentioned poor dear. Poor dear is an actual character in the book. It's sort of a made up avatar uh, that Margaret conjures for herself that's part conscience and part just maybe real Uh, a voice that that, um, embodies itself like a deer and and corrects her when she's going off base and and telling too many fibs about um, what went on on the day um, that her friend died
0: I mean I'm mentioning poor deer you have a really wide tapestry of characters that sort of filter in and out of Margaret's life that are infuriating and interesting and sometimes challenging even more so than what is already on the page. I mean, her mother as a character in general is a lot in in many moments to get through and is a challenge both to Margaret and to herself and to the story. But at the same time, is another one of those characters where if you put yourself in her shoes you wonder what would i do how would i feel in those moments and it's a complicated relationship i would say
2: that was my goal throughout to make a true character like what would a mother feel who wasn't quite sure how to feel about her child because her child doesn't seem to be telling the truth sometimes or I, I could imagine very easily that there would come a coldness as I settled into that truth that the mom is going to withdraw her love and and be skeptical and a little cold and a little disciplinarian. The mother's sister, Aunt Dolly, got warmer as I wrote because there needed to be someone there for Margaret. Uh, there's a few people along the way, but Aunt Dolly was sort of her her anchor and. Um, Became way warmer because I I needed that to be there just to balance the book and make it the kind of book I wanted to be, which was full of hope and love. The, the love is sort of a sustaining element all the way through, even even when tragedy uh, strikes.
0: I was so happy to go along with Dolly as she was caring for Margaret and caring for this. I mean, she's just like you feel the warmth in that character. You feel the love, especially when. She's sort of hitting dead ends with a lot of the other avenues of her life or the other people in her life or not being able to find that connection in ways that really you sort of pulls at you. And you're like, oh, you know, this you can understand that town and what it's been through and just the size of it lends to a lot of ostracization, I guess, of her feelings because there's not a lot of places she can turn to. She's pretty isolated in that way
2: yeah, um, Aunt Dolly is a character that I felt I've met many times in my life, um, not just my own aunts who, up uh, for the most part, were working class, solid milltown um, people, teachers and co-workers, and just someone who takes that extra step and is open to um, not judging people. And they seem to come in our lives. Fairly regularly when we need them. Um, At least that's been my experience. So I really enjoyed writing that character. Um, Probably one of my favorite characters in the novel. I would agree.
0: And I always felt that even when Margaret sort of mentioned these other people like there's a man and some birds, there's some teachers, some other things. And maybe this is my own bias, but everything that I felt she said about Dolly felt true. The characterizations felt true. I didn't question. Whether or not that description was a misremembered thing that you feel connected to.
2: Good. I'm glad to hear that.
0: I also was wondering this is just uh, me and the Claire Oshetsky extended universe. I kept wondering what would have been Margaret's reality if Tiny, the mother from Chouette, had been her mother instead. And just the difference that maybe her (laughs) upbringing would have been if she had had that really dedicated, devoted mother.
2: Thank you for having that thought. Yeah, they don't intersect very much as mothers. They're, They're kind of polar opposites in many ways. One's very dedicated and one gets colder as the novel progresses.
0: I think Margaret could have come out of things maybe a little bit easier with a parent who was ready to... Meter where she was at. But at the same time, I mean, in those circumstances that Margaret's mother was in, she was in many ways doing the best with what she had available to her. I mean, there was a lot of lead up to where they were at. But, you know, I, I, like you were saying before, I was always just hoping every page to get one step closer to everyone doing okay and everyone being fine.
2: Yes. I wrote a lot of scenes that are not in this book. And a lot of it uh, was a lot darker, this weight or responsibility I felt of um, what it would be like i I honestly think it would take a whole lifetime to get over. Um, if you ever did, I'd write them and then I'd be like, no, that's not the that's not the book I want to write. that's not the book I want to write. But there they are in my drafts, and I don't know if you've noticed this i i I love watching um, author interviews and always, when someone says, what's your book about? There's this little like, uh, because we have all these other multiverses of books in our past that um, didn't make it to the, to the final draft.
0: I feel like the readers are in two camps of being like, no, I can, I don't ever want to know anything. Like I want the book to exist as it exists for me. And that's it. And then I feel like there's so many other people who are like, if only I could get my hands on all those missing pages." to see what, you know, what goes on in there. But I think it's kind of six of one half dozen the other because the book that we read and the book that comes out, you know, that's,
2: for whatever reason, became the final thing. Well, in this case, this is the book I wanted to write. And, and I had parts of me that really struggled to let go of these darker imaginings for my character. Um, but I, this is. Like an arrow from the beginning. I wrote like a thesis statement, I guess you could call it, that I'm going to write this book that it begins tragically and ends um, somewhat beautiful. And I hope this is not too much of a spoiler, but maybe people need a little bit of that because of the way it begins.
0: I don't think it's a spoiler because you that's what you th- feel this momentum towards the entire time. And, there are so many things that happen between start to finish that even if you know how it ends up, the journey to get there is so vast and wild and not at all what you'd expect that I think it ends up being satisfying no matter what because I could not have imagined some of the sort of layers that would need to happen in order to get to where. It ends. And the fact that, like you said, she is still only 16. I think I was a little floored when I started to do some math as I was reading and realized how young Margaret still was as she's telling this story. I would have imagined in some ways that it would take much longer to sort of be able
2: to have that recollection because 16 is still so young. She's still on a journey, though, at the end. And I have these interstitial three scenes of of an old woman interjecting to interrupt and set Margaret straight. And I do imagine that, well, she's identified in one of those scenes as Margaret as an old woman, maybe not to anyone else. But to me, it is Margaret as an old woman who's sort of the overarching narrator. She's remembering when she was 16. I don't know if, if other writers think this deeply about point of view, but who's telling this story? I'm always thinking, who's telling that story? And, and like in old, old novels, there'd always be this frame. There'd be like this old sea captain who sits down and tells you Lord Jim. And in this case, the person telling the story of Margaret sitting down and writing her story, I thought of as Margaret as an old woman. And of course, I'm the writer above that woman, old oh, woman, But I like thinking about those um, layers of storytelling. And in this case, like just acknowledging that 16 is still very young. She's still in a very fluid space. Um, We don't know really what's going to happen next. But there's this idea that someone is telling the story that got through it and is okay.
0: I'm picturing like a, a Russian nesting doll of like four people going up, just writing all at the same time as it trickles down. But I think that that works very well. I think you feel, no matter when you realize exactly who's telling what piece of the story, I think it's very easy to trust Margaret's voice in that it's going somewhere. You don't always know every detail and you don't always know if it's accurate to that moment, but you know she's taking you
2: somewhere and that makes it a journey to go on with her. Good. I tried to make it propulsive. I wanted it to keep going propulsively forward towards um, an outcome. That was important.
0: I wonder, too, sort of going past themes a little bit, you write a lot about nature and the natural world in your books. You've got in Chouette, I mean, obviously there's the owls, but there are so many other creatures that make their appearance in Chouette. And in this book, you've got Deer, you've got pigeons, you've got a lot of descriptions of these forests and mill the mill town itself and all these things. So how do you find incorporating that into your work? Where does that
2: come from sort of in your inspiration? It's essential. And I think of it as how Margaret finds a way out. Because if I have a faith, it's that we get to live another day. And and the wonder of that, just the overwhelming beauty of nature and to, to see it and and to experience things like trees and nature and animals and the way things keep growing up out of the ground in the spring. That perception of the world is a gift. It's the way um, Margaret redeems herself that no matter how tragic her past, she just is overwhelmed by the beauty of the world. And um, so there is a lot of, of nature of her observations of things that, that are just so beautiful that she can't, she can't hang on to the grief anymore.
0: I often found that when she was sort of overwhelmed or experiencing truly tragic things in her own life, we would cut to sort of these scenes of nature or her experiences, and it would just be like a, a sigh of relief, sort of, to remember that even when there are terrible things happening, it keeps going. And it's a season and a cycle. And there is an end and a beginning to everything, just as there's an end and a beginning to every emotion and every you know situation that you get stuck in. If If you've started it, it can also end. And that can be frightening, but it can also be something exciting and a relief.
2: Thank you for saying that, Jenna. I I think you get it a lot. I I just feel that with what you just said, what I was trying to write. And I think
0: that people will look for things like that in literature now. I think, you know, we've had a lot of escapist literature. We've had a lot of things over the past years that we've been really pulling back from. And it makes perfect sense after, you know, the last, I guess, three to five years of human history. It's been a lot but there's also so much to learn i think in fiction i think it's the best way for so many of us to connect and understand with each other with people not like us with people like us and there's so many of those little pieces where when you feel it you're like oh i know that feeling
2: yes and i know you're a big reader too and it's a, it's a miracle to me that the more unique and particular and weird in its own way a book is or a character that someone has created I feel like oh that's me I've had that feeling I don't get how that works but I love that I'm a big reader and I I, it happens a lot where it's very strange I've never known anyone like this character but I feel like a connection that's that's my favorite thing about about reading fiction
0: I agree I think there's so many of those moments and so much of it in your work comes from this sense of magical realism or almost like metaphors come to life. These things that sort of trickle in on the page and all of a sudden they are a full-blown thing or a, a full-blown feeling or a full-blown deer uh, specter
2: or owl baby. Or which frog. I, that or frog, frog is very important. Yeah. Yes,
0: funny. there's so many <laughs> of those that just find their way in. And I wonder when you're writing how you sort of create those moments, how they like enter into your writing? Is it something you set out to do? Or is that just the way the brain works? Because I think when I'm reading these kinds of things, I always want to know how they start the inception of some of
2: these things. I discovered it while writing. I didn't go out of my way to make Margaret love her natural world. I discovered it and I felt like that became her religion. When when other things just didn't didn't help her, she she went to confession. She was raised in a Christian home. She she learned about faith and forgiveness, but it it all just doesn't work for her until she she is um, gripped by um, her environment and she just can't be unhappy anymore. And I don't know how that came about, but I do know I spent a lot of time taking pictures of mushrooms so, or, or, you know, just like leaves. I'm like, oh, that's such a cool leaf. Maybe that is in me. I, I haven't really thought about it like that, but it came out on the page and it felt like a way out for this character that I put in a very tight situation.
0: I think so often, too, we forget or don't allow ourselves to remember that life is very strange and that um, though we often live sort of day-to-day lives that might feel boring, the world is weird. And these kinds of things, I mean, maybe they don't happen exactly as they've been on the page, but there are weird things in the world. And sometimes when we stop to look around, we'll notice more of them.
2: That's so true. And of course, when you're writing, you are paying attention, right? You, that's like what you're doing while you're writing is like, Something needs to be observed or to happen, so I I think it, it it's natural, yeah. Just as you say, if you pay attention, then you see how strange things are, and and it changes your perception of um, your troubles maybe in a way.
0: I think people who, when I talk to my friends that also read a lot, or my coworkers who also read a lot, I think you can train your brain a little bit through reading and writing to notice more of those things and to sort of make those connections and also be more open to just letting things happen.
2: That's right. A disaster is like, oh, good. Now I can write about it. (laughs) Sometimes. I used to be a travel writer and it was like really good when it started to sleep. You know, I was like, oh, yeah, I can write about this terrible day on my travels. Right. (laughs) No. (laughs)
0: Everyone's used to, you know, this was a lovely day. It was sunny and I walked around. But when you have something where you're like, and then they lost all my luggage and I got to yeah. the hotel and it didn't yeah. exist. Then you can, you can really put in some of those dramatic moments. It's helpful. Yes. <laughs> and there are plenty of dramatic moments that occur in poor Dear, But I think for me, the, what I walked away with was so much of this sense of connection with these characters, like finally towards the end, you see Margaret, and these, some of these things with Penny and Glow I won't spoil, but you really start to see her understand some of these things that I think she's been wrestling with for so long. And though you do not know what the next step is, you do start to feel that relief from grief, which I think is a lifelong thing. There's no end to grief. I always, a friend of mine once said like, grief never gets smaller, you just get bigger. And mm-hmm. I think that that was how I started to feel with Margaret towards the end. I'm so glad to hear that. Thank you, Jenna. So we talked a little bit about this before, some books that influenced the writing of this book. But I wonder who on a bigger, grander scale are some of your literary influences or things that you come back to often for inspiration?
2: I'm going to... I have this other book over here in case you asked that. It's a children's book that a lot of people haven't read. It's called The Witch Family by Eleanor Estes. This author had some of the uh, Caldecott winners or Newbery, whatever the, the children's book um, author uh, medals are. But this one is a little unknown and was out of print for a while. I think it's back in paperback now. And it's a story of two little girls who draw. And tell stories to each other about their drawings and and interstitially every other chapter you are in that story that they're telling each other this is a real place that they've created that there's this witch family that lives on a glass mountain and i i just have the deepest debt in poor deer which you've read you understand that a lot of a lot of the made up stories uh, become kind of true. And and there's a lot of um, interplay between storytelling and reality shaping in my book. And this is where it began. I recommend it for children. I recommend people read it to their children. Read it for yourself. I could like, you know, I can tell we both love reading and have a lot of books we love, but this is the one that I think I'd point to and say this, this was the seminal work. Um, that influenced my uh, my latest novel,
0: and it has a great jacket. That's a, incredible. Like if I saw that somewhere, I would be like, "Yes, please." This is an old copy
2: um, from the fifties. Yeah, it's. I love I love illustrations in books. <laughs> like, so I don't know why adults don't get more illustrations. They should. No.
0: I mean, and speaking of incredible jackets, like Poor Deer has a really like striking jacket. I think that's such an incredible piece of artwork for the book.
2: I just got the hardcover yesterday and and it's so brilliant. It's, it's like, it really surprised me. I like it too. Here it is. I have my copy. I have a
0: copy here. Mine is a little, a little beat up and, and the, you know, the uncorrected, but I can't wait for people to get their hands on this book. I think they are going to fall in love with Margaret. I think they're going to really feel a lot of things while they read and that's I think what we can all hope for in a book and so thank you so much Claire for joining us today on poured over everyone please go pick up your copy of poor dear and if you haven't read Chouette yet I encourage you to get that as well for the full spectrum of all the emotions that you need so thank you so much
2: <laughs> Jenna it's a delight to speak with you thank you Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.